May of 2012, the President of the United States sat down for an interview with ABC News, and he announced to the world that he had changed his views on marriage. And just to give you a little bit of what he said, many of you remember this. Here he is in his own words. I've just concluded that for me personally, it is important for me to go ahead and affirm that I think same-sex couples should be able to get married. And he went on. He said, Michelle and I are both practicing Christians. And obviously this position may be considered to put us at odds with the views of others. But you know, when we think about our faith, the thing at root that we think about is not only Christ sacrificing himself on our behalf, But it's also the golden rule, you know, treat others the way you would want to be treated. And on he went and explained on the basis of his Christian faith why he thinks that same-sex couples should be allowed to be married. My reaction to the president probably wasn't that different from what your reaction was. I thought that it was wrong, in error, outrageous. I thought citing Jesus as if he were in support of such a thing was wrong. But I also thought that there was really nothing new in what what he said. The president is a sign of our times. He is not the cause of our times. In fact, anyone who thinks that the president has caused this massive revolution in our culture on the definition of marriage... Anybody who's thinking that way is really sort of missing the point. The changes over the years in people's views about marriage have accelerated, but the seeds of these changes were sown many years ago. Our culture long ago embraced the revolution, sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s. Our culture long ago embraced the idolatry of sex and the diminishing of marriage. Our culture long ago embraced the ubiquity of the birth control pill and the severing of human sexuality from its connection to children and family. Our culture long ago embraced no-fault divorce and the idea that you can change spouses like you change your socks. Our culture long ago embraced the idea that there's no difference between men and women and that gender is just a social construct that we have learned from culture. Not something given to us by God at creation. Our culture long ago embraced the idea that gender shouldn't matter when it comes to marriage. And so we have a whole generation, moms and dads, who are looking at you trying to figure out why you have all these hang-ups that you have about the definition of marriage. No, our culture's devolution didn't begin with an announcement from the president in 2012. This slide has been a long time. Incoming. So that's why I want you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 23, where we're going to try to spend a few moments tracing out what God's thoughts are on the issue of marriage. As many of you know, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33 is about how husbands and wives are supposed to relate to one another within marriage. But it's actually, this whole text is actually an extension of a command that Paul gave in verse 18 where he said, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, which all in the world that means is to be controlled by the Spirit. And one manifestation of the Spirit's control over our lives 
is how we live in and think about marriage. How we relate to to each other as husbands and and wives within marriage. So my, my focus this morning is not so much what's gone wrong with the world, but what needs to go right in here with us. And the truth of the matter is, is that too many of the pews across our country are filled with people whose thinking about marriage differs very little from the way that the rest of the world thinks about it. There has to be more to marriage than what the world alleges. Ephesians 5, 21 to 33 says that there is. God's glory is at stake in marriage. And so, in at least three ways, we see how God's glory is at stake in marriage in this text. God's glory, we see God's glory in three ways. God's glory in a wife's submission. God's glory in a husband's love. And then God's glory in marriage. And so let's take a look at each of these in verses 21 to 33. First of all, God's glory in a wife's submission. Now, before we read the text, just let me say this up front. I know that this word submission is a red flag word. Uh, many people hear that word and they immediately associate it with coercion or with, with abuse. Let me just say that that's not at all what this word means. It's a biblical term. And uh, we're going to spend some time unpacking it here. Take a look at verse 21. Look what Paul says. He says, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now there's our term. Be subject to one another. Be subject. The the word that Paul uses here for being subject is actually a military term, and it refers to ranking someone in a subordinate position. It's someone who's following another person's leadership. So to be subject to someone means to submit to their authority. It's all that it means. But what does Paul mean by submit to one another? Some people think that when Paul says that, All he means to do in this passage is to tell the whole congregation that we all need to submit to each other in the same way. It's this kind of idea of mutual submission in the sense that that, uh, everybody submits to everybody in the sense that we're all serving one another and we're all putting one another's interests before our own. Now, I think obviously the Bible does teach that we're supposed to serve each other and put other people's interests above our own. But I don't think that that's what Paul is talking about here. The word that Paul is using for for being subject is stronger than that. It's a word that denotes authority and leadership and following that leadership when it's given to a leader. So Paul isn't telling everyone to submit to everyone. He's telling one group of their specific responsibility to their spouses. And that becomes clear in verse 22. So he says in verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. But then verse 22, look at verse 22. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. And the the verb there actually picks up from verse 21. Wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. So all in the world Paul is saying here is that the authority in marriage that a wife is supposed to recognize is her own husband. But notice what Paul doesn't say. And I want you to hear this. Paul could have said, husbands, subject your wives to yourselves. That's not what he says. Paul might have spoken in such a way that called on husbands to compel or coerce submission from their wives. And that would not have been strange in the patriarchal culture in which they were embedded in the first century. 
But that's not how Paul talks here. He addresses not the husbands to compel or coerce this subjection. He addresses the wives. And he says, be subject in the passive voice. The implication of this is that wives are called on voluntarily to submit to the leadership of their husbands. Submission is not a draft. It's an all-volunteer force. That means that the responsibility falls to the wives to recognize and follow the leadership that God has given to their husbands within marriage. It falls to the wives to do this, not the husbands to make them do this. Guys, if you ever find yourself trying to force your wife to follow your leadership, then you need to know there's a problem. Especially if it's a pattern over the course of your marriage. And you need to be asking yourself, why isn't she following me? Now, the answer may be that she's in rebellion against what God has called her to to be in marriage. That's, That's certainly possible. And if that's the case, you can pray for her. You can tenderly exhort her. But many times, the reason that she's not following is because you're being a crummy leader. Paul has something to say to you if that's the case. But just be clear now that you don't ever have permission from Scripture to coerce or to manipulate subjection. Obviously, you would never physically coerce your wife to do anything, but neither can you be verbally abusive or manipulative to get your way. If you think that you have to be verbally and emotionally intimidating to get your wife to assume Uh, a a role of subjection in marriage, then the problem is not her, it's you. And you need to repent. But wives, what this does mean for you is that the onus is on you to follow the leadership of your husband as to the Lord. Now, let's be careful here. You're not supposed to be in subjection to every man, just to one man, your husband. And if you're married to a good man... You choose not to do this. He's not going to wrestle you for it, okay? Um, This is falling to you. God calls you to follow the leadership of your husband, it says in the text, as to the Lord, which means that you should view following that leadership to your husband as a part of your commitment to the Lord Jesus. So wives, the narrow road that leads to life for you is the path of following the leadership of your husband. But why does God require this? Well, look at verse 23. It explains why. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Now, our culture tends to treat leadership within marriage like it's uh, like a jump ball in a basketball game, right? Right? The referee comes out, he throws up the ball, whoever's stronger and can jump higher, uh, that's who gets the ball, right? And a lot of people treat leadership in marriage like that. You know, who's ever more competent in any given moment, they can be the leader in in that moment. But that's not how God assigns leadership roles in marriage. It's more like an inbound pass where the referee has already assigned the possession before the ball comes into play. And in this case, in marriage, God has assigned the possession to the husband. He has called the husbands to lead in marriage. 
And so this verse says that the husband is the head of the wife, which means he is the one who has the primary responsibility for leadership. Some people try to explain the husband's headship away and say that it's, it, it's not talking about authority here, that, that head just means he's the source of the wife. That, that's not what this means. That's mistaken. We know that because the husband's headship is patterned after Christ's headship over the church. That's what the text says, as Christ also is the head of the church. He's not just the source of the church. He's the authority over the church, right? In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, it says this, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Now, obviously, Christ's headship has to do with authority. That's what it means. And in the same way, the husband is called to be the leader and the authority in the home. But look at verse 24. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. What? Now this verse has scared a lot of people over the years. Does it really mean that a wife has to follow the leadership of her husband in everything? Well, it's, it's not... When you, you think about Christ's headship over the church and a husband's headship in a marriage, it's an analogy, but it's not a perfect analogy. If you press it too far, it will at points collapse. Christ is sinless and perfect. Husbands are not. The wives are elbowing right now. Amen. <laughs> wives are not supposed to submit to abuse or to sin. No authority on earth is an absolute authority, not even a husband's authority. So when submitting to a husband requires submitting to abuse or to sin, then the Christian wife must follow the example of Peter and the apostles who said in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. Meaning that you recognize the ultimate the ultimate authority, which is God, and you never do anything in contradiction to Him. Well, then, the question is, well, then why does Paul use that expansive language? Wives are supposed, it says, to submit to their husbands in everything. Why does he use that expansive language? I think he uses that language because he does intend to communicate that wives are to orient their lives and their plans around the leadership of their husbands. That's what he means by that. My wife knows my heart and my vision for our home and for raising our children. Submission for her means trying to order the household around that vision, even when I'm not there. There's a happy deference that's there that is pervasive in everything that she does. That's what it means in everything. That doesn't mean that it's always easy for her to do that. It certainly doesn't mean that I'm always right. But right or wrong, she's always aiming to support my leadership. Uh, my wife Susan and I kind of have this perennial disagreement that we've had over the course of our marriage. And it's caused uh, no little bit of conflict over the years. But we tend to butt heads a little bit when it comes to determining, to determining when it's time to fill up the gas tanks in the automobiles. And, and this is how it has gone in the past. It usually goes like this. The gas gauge will be approaching empty. 
And she'll politely say, looks like we're getting a little bit low on gas. To which I will reply, nah, we've got plenty. And on more than one occasion, she's had to endure the uncertainty of going around town on fumes because I don't want to pull over and and get gas. So several years ago, this happened, and we were living in Dallas, Texas. We were driving down the freeway on one Sunday afternoon. We were going to visit my aunt. She lived about 15 miles away. And Susan mentioned on the way out to her house that we were getting a little low on gas. And I said, no, we've got plenty. And after finishing our visit, we're driving home. She tells me again, it's like we're getting a little on gas. I was, ah, no, we've got plenty. Do you need me to finish this story? <laughs> so we're going down the freeway, an eight-lane freeway, and all of a sudden the car starts to sputter. And I'm going, oh, <laughs> here it is. And so I start drifting over to the right looking for an exit, and there just happens to be one. And the car is sputtering out, and I've got just enough momentum to roll up the exit. There was a green light at the top, and I rolled across the intersection. Engine goes out, and I roll into the gas station in front of the gas pump. Susan was very thankful to be my wife at that moment. Uh, You can imagine how she was feeling about that. I looked over at her, and I was like, what? We made it, you know? (laughs) Maybe the worst time that this happened was also in Dallas. Um, Susan was about one week away from giving birth to our first child. So she's just about nine months pregnant, and uh, we were going to have one last date night before uh, the baby came. And so we got dressed up. We got in the car. And um, we're getting close to E. We need gas. No, we don't need gas. And, uh, but this time there was no rolling up into the gas station. We got to the uh, really nice section of town. We're about to take a left. It's a really nice restaurant. You can see the, the uh, valets across the street. And I uh, get to this intersection, and it just conks out. It's blazing hot out there. We're both dressed up. She has to... I have to get out and push the car. She has to shimmy over the console, nine months pregnant, and I push it into the valets come across and help me push my car into the gas station as as we're doing this. She was not a real happy camper on that one either. So I'm sharing all this. These are humorous stories, but I could tell stories that aren't humorous too. And I'm telling the stories because sometimes submission is difficult And the difficulty is not always because your husband is being abusive or he's asking you to do something that's sinful. It may be because he's doing something that's boneheaded or that you believe could be unwise or could be done in a better way. And oftentimes you do actually know better than your husband. And so being subject to your own husband as to the Lord is going to be for you trying to figure out how to honor your husband's leadership No matter what the situation, you need to offer your counsel to your husband to make sure that he has all the wisdom that he can glean from you. You need to do that. And husbands, you need to be open to that. But you also need to figure out how to strengthen his leadership even in the tough times. Offer him patience and support even when it's difficult to do so because you disagree. Wives, 
Be submissive to your husbands. Ask of the Lord. Be, be in sub- subjection in everything, it says. God's glory is in a wife's submission. But the second thing is that God's glory is in a husband's love. And this is the first thing here in verse 25. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Now, notice the wife's responsibility is to submit, but the husband's responsibility is to love. Now, it's not like the wife isn't supposed to love, okay? That's not what's going on here. But it is interesting that Paul is specifying to the husbands that this is your main role. These are different roles that are given to the husband and the wife because love in this text is not just a state of mind on the husband's part. This love issues forth in certain kinds of behaviors from the husband to the wife. And I believe we can summarize those behaviors in three terms. If you're writing writing notes down, write these down. Love is expressed in leadership, in protection, and in provision. We could say more than that, but it's at least that. Leadership and protection and provision. Husband, you love your wife by leading her, by protecting her, and by providing for her. Now, I think we already saw the leadership assignment in verse 23 where it says the husband is the head of the wife. But I think we see the protection and the provision implied in verses 28 and 29. So look at verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Then look at verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. So think about this, husbands. What does it mean to love your wife as you love your own body? Men, what do you do when you're sitting at home and you're resting in your easy chair and your stomach growls? Do you have to be talked in to getting up out of your chair and finding something to eat? No, when you're hungry, you eat. You provide for yourself instinctively. Nobody has to tell you to do this. Guys, if I come up to you, I'm not going to do this, but if I came up to you after church and I reared back like I was about to punch you in the face, what would you do? You would put your hands up. Some of you would punch me first. Uh, but you would immediately go into to protect mode, right? Uh, nobody would have to go, hey, man, protect yourself. You would just do that instinctively because that's how you care for your own person. That's how you do it. This is how you're supposed to love your wife. You lead her and you give her protection and provision and you do so in a way that is instinctive. You don't have to be told to do this. You just do it because you're caring for her like you care for your own body. That's what it means. This love is modeled on Christ's love for the church, which means that it is, first of all, sacrificial. So look at the second part of verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, your headship in your home does not exist so that you can put your desires and needs before everybody else's in the household. Your headship exists so that you can give yourself up for your wife like Christ gave himself up for you. This means that being the leader and the provider and the protector is sometimes going to be hard for you. 
And there are going to be times when you have a conflict with your wife. And there will be times when the conflict is her fault. And you're going to feel like disengaging from her emotionally because of it. But you don't get to do that. You don't get to do a passive aggressive sulk until your wife swallows her pride and comes and tries to make amends with you. You are the leader and that means that you are leading the charge for reconciliation when there's a conflict in your marriage. You get to treat your wife like Jesus treats you as a sinner. And you, did Jesus wait for you to become repentant and deserving before he gave himself for you? Before he drew you to himself? Did Jesus lead out in your reconciliation with him or did you? You know the answer to that. Jesus did everything to win you and you must do the same for your wife. You say, well, I'm really mad at her. Well, you get unmad. You say, but I'm not a real good communicator. I'm not either. And you just got to get better at communicating. And you lead your wife. And you take the initiative and you model tenderness and mercy and love and forgiveness and everything else that she needs to make submitting to you a joy for her. You say, but that's hard. Well, yeah, it is. But Jesus blazed the trail for us and you're not going to have to do anything harder than what he did to love you. So you follow Jesus and you love your wife self-sacrificially. That's what that means. And one day when they're throwing the dirt in on your coffin, your kids need to be able to look down in the hole and say, Daddy loved Mama like Christ loved the church. Why? Look at verse 26. Why did Jesus love his bride that way? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and blameless. Jesus gave himself up for his bride with a purpose in mind. He wanted to sanctify her in the present and to perfect her for the last day. In other words, Jesus has his brides total spiritual renewal in mind as he initiates reconciliation with her. So husbands, let me ask you the question. Does your love for your wife have a purpose? Jesus' love for his bride had a purpose. Are you self-consciously calculating how you can cheer your wife on to love and good deeds? How you can encourage her to be more and more Christ-like until the last day appears? How you can enable her in her gifts until the last day appears. If you don't have your wife's sanctification and perfection in mind, then you aren't loving her as Christ loves his bride. Verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. About 26 years ago, uh, Randy Travis, y'all know Randy Travis, the country singer? He um, released a song called On the Other Hand. Anybody remember that song? On the Other Hand? 
It's funny how when you're young, you hear all these songs, you sing these lyrics, and you don't even know what you're singing or paying or what you're talking about. Um, I remember that song from years ago when I was younger. But uh, a few years ago, I was driving down the road, and I heard that song come on, and I, I listened to the lyrics, it seemed like, for the first time. I'd heard that song a hundred times, but this was the first time I heard it. And the song is about a husband who is contemplating adultery. And the song is explaining why he chooses not to go forward with this adulterous decision. And what he does in the song is he lists all the things that delight him about this other woman who's not his wife. And after singing about all these things that delight him about this other woman, he says this in the chorus. He says, but on the other hand, there's a golden band that reminds me of someone who would not understand. On one hand, I could stay and be your loving man. But the reason I must go back to my wife is on the other hand. And so the song reads like uh, this guy should be congratulated on his loyalty uh, to his wife as if the reminder of the old ball and chain on his ring finger is some kind of a great honor to her. But here's the thing, guys. There's not really a, a woman on the planet who wants to be loved like that. Don't get me wrong. It was right for him not to commit adultery. But to think of your wife as kind of the old ball and chain, sort of the duty that you have to uh, meet day in and day out while all your passion and delight has been transferred elsewhere. And so it's sheer duty. Like this guy that takes him home, he's right to go home, but he's wrong to be feeling what he's feeling as if he's indifferent to her while all his passions and energies are directed elsewhere. You will never love your bride as Christ loves his bride if you are indifferent towards your spouse. That indifference and coldness comes from months and years sometimes and decades sometimes of passivity towards your marriage. But men, God has called you to lead. And the state of your marriage is your responsibility. It falls to you. You have to take the initiative to cultivate the vineyard of your marriage. And if you don't, you will wake up one day with thistles and briars covering the face of your garden. And it will be devastating to your wife and to your children and to you and will bring a reproach on the gospel. So God's glory is in a wife's submission, but husbands, God's glory is in, a, in your love. You've got to love your bride. Last thing is this, in verse 29, God's glory in marriage. Look at verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So again, he's confirming our marriages are to be patterned after Christ's marriage to his church. And Christ nourishes and cherishes his bride. Because we're members of his body. Christ doesn't hate his own flesh. He loves his own flesh and he cares for it. We are his flesh because we're members of him. But how is it that we've become Jesus' own flesh? Well, look at the next verse in verse 31. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one 
flesh. Now, verse 31, you may notice in your Bibles, in all capital letters, or maybe it's in italics, the, the translators of your Bible are trying to tell you that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. This is a quotation of Genesis chapter 2 in verse 24, which is, I believe, the single most important verse in all of the Bible explaining the meaning and the purpose of marriage. In fact, it, I think it's the most important, the, we, we'd say the most important statements about marriage in the New Testament come from Jesus and Paul. This is one of them here. And in each case that Jesus or Paul talk about marriage, they quote the Old Testament to establish what marriage is. And they quote this verse. But when Jesus and Paul quote the Old Testament, they never point back to the great polygamous kings of Israel like David or Solomon. They don't point back to the grand polygamous patriarchs of the Old Testament like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For all the importance that those people have in biblical theology, that's not who Jesus and Paul point to. Jesus and Paul don't look to any of those guys as the paradigm for marriage. Instead, without exception, they go back to the time when there was no sin in the world and when there was one marriage and it was the union of one man and one woman in the garden. And it says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Not three, not four, not five. Two shall become one flesh. Marriage is the covenantal union before God of one man and one woman. They leave their families to form a new family. They are united together in a conjugal bond and they become one flesh, meaning that they become like blood relations. That's what that means. They do that through the consummated covenant of marriage. But notice the beginning of verse 31. It's very interesting because usually when Paul quotes the Old Testament, he'll introduce it with like, just as it is written or the scripture says. But he doesn't introduce this quotation that way. He just quotes the verse. And I think he does it because he wants that first phrase in, in the verse to have its real connective force in the context. For this cause. Did you see that? For this cause. Why does a man leave his father and mother and join himself to a wife? Why does marriage exist in the world? Why is it that we have this age-old institution that cuts across all cultures and all times and all religious groups that one man and one woman would come together for life? Why does marriage exist for this cause? Which points us back to verse 30. For what cause? Because Christ nourishes and cherishes His bride. For that reason, marriage exists on planet Earth. Marriage exists to tell a story about Jesus' marriage to His bride. And so Paul says in verse 32, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ in the church. The key to this text is to understand that when Paul talks about a mystery, he's not using that term like we use the term mystery. When we use the term mystery, it's something like it's something hidden, right? Something unknown. When Paul uses the term mystery, he's talking about something that was once hidden under the old covenant, but now has been made known under the new covenant. Paul says that mystery, that thing that was once hidden, but now that's very plain now that Jesus has come, that mystery is great. And I'm talking about Jesus in the church. 
So here's the mystery. From the very beginning, God intended marriage to be a depiction of the gospel. For this cause, people get married. To demonstrate to the world that Christ loves and cherishes His bride. Marriage exists to manifest the glory of Christ's redemptive love for His bride. That means your marriage exists to display to the world the glory of Christ's redemptive love for His bride. That's why your marriage exists. It was once unknown. It's now very plain in the coming, with the coming of Christ. Husbands, you are to love your bride in such a way that people can see Christ's love for His church. Wives, you are to submit to your husbands in such a way that the world can see the loveliness of, of Christ and the obedience of His church. We are Christ's flesh and blood by covenant. We belong to our beloved and He belongs to us and our marriages exist to draw attention to that. So wives, do you see how God's glory is at stake in the role that God has called you to in your marriage? Husbands, do you see how God's glory is at stake in your love for your wife? To everybody in the church, married or not, do you see how God's glory is at stake in the marriages in this church? Your witness, Fisherville Baptist Church, consists in large part in the marriages in this church. We take marriage seriously because God takes it seriously. When a marriage falls apart, it says something blasphemous about Jesus and the gospel. That's why we care so much about it. I don't want you to walk out of here thinking that we're talking about some light thing. We're talking about something that is deadly serious. It's hard to do this. It's hard to live this out. And you won't be able to do it on your own. But God can do it. And He can bring you the resources you need to be faithful to the role that He's called you to. But I believe that you're not going to get to that place if you can't see the end from the beginning. And if you can't see what the end goal of it all is, the end goal of your marriage is the glory of God to reveal the gospel. Marriage is not a personal lifestyle choice. Marriage is about the glory of God and about, and about whether or not people in this community are going to see the glory of God in your marriage. You wonder why marriage is under assault in our culture right now? Listen, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, spiritual forces of darkness. If you think we're just having a culture war, you're missing it. What would you do if you were the devil? If you were the devil, you knew that God had placed this thing in the world that exists to give to the world a picture of Christ's love for his church. And that thing we're called marriage. What would you try to do to marriages? You'd try to tear that thing to pieces. You'd try to get people... To believe that they can break their marriages apart for any or no reason at all. You try to get people to think that you don't need a bride and a groom in a marriage. You can just have whoever. If you were the devil, 
and you were attacking God's purposes in the world, you would try to destroy marriage. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. But it can't be that way here. It can't be that way here. It might be that way in the world. But we're bearing witness to another kingdom. We're bearing witness to the glory of God in the world. That can't happen among us. We have to take God's definitions and what God says and see His glory as the end of it all. Susan and I hit a rough patch during our own marriage and about our third year, and I was still in seminary finishing my Ph.D., and came to realize that I was not taking the long view of our marriage and where I wanted us to end up one day. And I wanted the years to gather up for us blessing and tenderness and not bitterness and indifference. And so I wrote a poem for Susan on our third anniversary that was a vision of how I was hoping and praying we might end up. And uh, I, I did write this for her, but over the years as I've come back to it, it's been uh, something for me. It's, uh, I'm going to close with this. It's just a story and, and a prayer. I'm going to read this to you and then we'll close. The old man took her tired hand to hold for one last time. The years had finally pressed her to her final breaths of life. Their wrinkled hands and warm embrace brought back the long-gone years, the memories of their happy times and those dissolved in tears. The old man saw in her ill frame the girl that stole his heart. He saw in her that gracious gaze that filled their home with warmth. His mind turned back to lighter days when she did make her mark. The children her love reared for them, her single heart for God. He also felt the weight of grace that marked her many years, how she had borne him patiently when he did cause the tears. The old man said, My love, the time was cruelly short to me. I cannot say goodbye and let your passing be. How can I ever say farewell or ever let you part? You're my only precious thing, the joy of my old heart. And as his eyes began to well, she reached to touch his face. And then her quivering voice began to give one final grace. This is the day that the Lord has made, the one he's brought to pass. This day was written in his book before my first was passed. The Lord has granted us to spend together all these years. He's also granted all the joy and even all our tears. And though this is a bitter day, we owe him so much thanks. Dear, we made it. By him we made it. Yes, we made it by grace. And then the prayer. O oh, Father, grant that we may see our days is at their end. Oh, let us know the weight of grace in every year we spend. We make this prayer unto you, for there is no one higher. This testimony of your grace we desperately desire. Let's pray.